This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Today, the state opposition is calling on the state government to start crisis talks for the sheep industry, which it says is struggling with falling sheep prices. Also today, and after the news headlines at half past 12, it's a busy time in the Ord Valley at the moment with the cotton picking. Well, it's almost done and the headers are being dusted off. They're coming out of the sheds and they're just about ready to get into those corn crops. Five past 12 here on the Country Hour. And we're going to start the hour with a new report that shows Australia's grains industry is struggling to compete internationally due to inefficiencies in the supply chain. The Connecting the Dots, Improving Australian Grain Supply Chain Efficiency was commissioned by grain growers and compiled by Global Strategy Consultancy, LEK. Zach Whale is the General Manager of Policy and Advocacy with Grain Growers. Zach, why should growers care about these inefficiencies? Well, ultimately, the grower pays. The grower pays for transport. So every dollar spent in transport ultimately comes off what the grower receives. And we've got international players that, that often have a lower cost base with grain production. And so when we're um, exporting to international markets, if they can do it cheaply, that really impacts us. Um, as we know, Australia is an expensive country to operate in. Our labour costs are high, our input costs are high, and sometimes our transport costs are, are really high by international standards as well. So grain growers are really keen to get to the nub of that and work out what we can do to actually bring those costs down. Right, so let's take a look across the country and the key grain-growing regions in Australia. What are the main areas highlighted in this report for improvement? The biggest one, and it's such an issue, especially with some really wet harvests over the last couple of years, road funding. Maintenance budgets are underdone year on year, and there's there's some real systemic issues with the way our roads are funded. So we need cash injections into what we call first and last mile. So the the road funding that actually gets the road from the farm gate to those big arterial roads and then the the bit at the end, you know, where you're actually getting to destination. Local governments, you know, are responsible for around 87% of Australia's road network. So so we need to fix road funding. Um, That's absolutely critical. And it's not just money for new roads. It's ongoing money so that we can maintain the ones we've got. Another interesting component is actually on bridge infrastructure. Often bridges are the weakest point in a network. So we might be able to handle larger axle loads and and larger weights on other parts of the road. But if you've got a small bridge or an old bridge, then that means you can't actually get high productivity vehicles along that corridor. So we've got to target those bridges on key freight routes to start to lift the total payload that we can move. Road regulation, this is varied across states, but road regulation and permitting processes are often really inefficient and cumbersome and they take growers considerable time and considerable money. This one, you know, everyone will understand our rail network is incredibly convoluted and unaligned, a patchwork of of gauges and axle loads, which causes significant issues with efficiency. Again, with the grains industry being so export-focused, rail's often an ideal way to get grain to port. So we we need to, to... remember rail in the mix and we've seen a trend away from rail year on year uh, across most parts of the country. Supply chain data, how do you optimise a transport network efficiently? You need data to underpin what is moving where, when and we've got a lack of granular data so we need to address that. And finally, port connectivity. 
Anything we export goes through a port. So we have to make sure that the port works, that road and rail access is streamlined, and also issues around you know, land planning and port congestion and the efficiency of ports uh, is really important as well. So, so they're the six key areas. Zach, how much variation is there in the grain supply chains that we have across the country? Huge. Um, east to west is, is completely in, completely varied. On the east coast, we've got a real duality of strong domestic demand, be it flour mills, be it feedlots and export markets, while on the west, we're much more export focused. And, and, and that makes a real difference. The more directions grain goes in, the harder it is to invest in physical infrastructure to drive efficiency. So there is a difference east to west, but we do export grains out of all our grain growing states. So we do need you know, that port piece to be right. But say if you take northern New South Wales and Queensland, for instance, grain is not always destined for a port. So in, in some instances, road will always need to be a factor in how we get that grain from paddock to customer, whomever they may be, noting that we still need a, a viable export pathway which, which involves rail to efficiently get those grains to port. Zach, here in WA, the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, is going to invest $4 billion over the next 10 years into the co-op's network infrastructure and assets. And this is all part of its Pathway to 2033 strategy, which aims to lift the co-op's monthly export capacity to 3 million tonnes by 2033, or sooner if it can. Earlier this year, it purchased 17 narrow-gauge locos, 200 standard-gauge, 450 narrow-gauge grain hopper wagons. What's your assessment of that plan, the sort of money being spent in Western Australia into the supply chain? Is that the, the right direction to be going? It's so exciting. I mean, Australia last year produced around 65 million tonnes of grain and in the West we've seen records broken every year for the last couple of years and CBH has really risen to the challenge to work out how do they increase their export capacity and how do they make sure that they can export more and more each month to capitalise on that, that time-critical export program. So CBH has done a phenomenal amount of work in, in rising to that occasion. They've got good co-investment from other investors as well. Uh, and I think that places the WA grower in a really ideal situation. WA, like I said, unlike the eastern states, because it's more export-focused, the grain tends to flow in a westerly direction and then onto a vessel. So it is simpler in the west. But look, I think CBH needs to be highly commended for their investment. And, and that's going to, you know, hopefully put the network in good stead to handle ever-increasing yields and, and production in the west. Is that the sort of money that needs to be spent in the eastern states? Like, you know, CBH putting in $4 billion over 10 years. Is that the sort of investment you'd like to see in the east? Oh, look, it, it's a question for individual bulk handle as to how, how they invest in the network. But I think it's fair to say we need government to partner with industries and partner with powerhouse industries like the grain sector to make sure the supply chains work. We are seeing some of that investment coming from state and federal governments, you know, in, in some parts of the country. But, you know, you're saying the industry is a powerhouse. I mean, why aren't governments, you know, really jumping to make these efficiencies more of a priority considering the, the flow, you know, the money that's coming into the economy as a result of this industry? Oh, look, it's a great question and it's why we've done this work with LEK. We're trying to build an evidence base to make it easy for government to partner with us and to invest. I think a lot of people have called for things like greater investments in road and, and rail for years, but is there a business case? 
Uh, is there an ironclad rationale as to why government should do that and why it helps the broader economy? I think what Grain Growers is trying to do, you know, is build that comprehensive evidence base so that we can actually partner with all players to give this a better chance. Some of it, you know, it just makes so much sense, but budgets are contested and lots of stakeholder groups are begging for money. And so in that context, you've got to rise to the top and you've got to put forward a really strong rationale as to why that investment makes sense for government. And, that, and that's exactly what Grain Growers is trying to do. So what are the consequences if Australia doesn't improve efficiencies in these supply chains? Well, look, the, 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 the real issue in the short term is we can't export enough quickly enough. We're counter-cyclical to the Northern Hemisphere, so we've got a time premium where if we can get our commodities onto world markets quickly, that equals more money. So, you know, realistic, what does it mean? It means we're slower and we capture less value from those lucrative international markets when optimal time windows are narrow. So we're leaving value on the table uh, and that's in no interest. Um, The economy and our regional communities and our farmers all benefit if we can optimise this. So what's the next step here, Zach? The next step is to build a really comprehensive strategy. We've got the empirical research, we've got the LEK report, uh, improving Australian supply chain, chain efficiency. Now we're going to work with a range of stakeholders and build a comprehensive action plan and we're going to advocate off the back of it and work with government and try to actually translate some of this into action. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Zach Whale, he's the General Manager of Policy and Advocacy with Grain Growers. 14 past 12. In some other grains industry news, if you've got some lentils to sell, you'll be pleased to hear that the lentil prices spiked last month, some up $200 a tonne. Here in Western Australia, most of the commercial lentils are grown in the Esperance Port Zone, but only about 10,000 hectares have been planted this season, and that's down on previous years, mostly due to the depressed prices. Across the country, it's a bit of a different story. Australia had a bumper lentil harvest last year, but because global stocks are low, international demand has hit almost record levels. William Alexander is a pulse trader at Australian Grain Exports and thinks prices could go even higher. Lentils, the demand has just gone up and up and up in previous years and and hit an all-time high this year. So even though we produce such a record crop, demand has also been record-breaking. Hence, all our lentils have gone out of the door over the past 12 months. And then finally, throw into that the fact that Canada has had another poor crop, I'd say, on lentils. So red lentils in Canada, their production is going to be considerably lower than last year. And demand has not only been amazing, but it's actually increased. Combine all those things together and the price has now jumped up to where we're at now, which is, you know, we're paying over $1,000 for lentils in South Australia uh, and then, you know, high 900s in Victoria, upcountry Victoria. So it'd be over 1000 into Melbourne. Have um, we ever seen prices like this before? Yes, we have, Karen. Yes, we've seen lentil prices get this high. Funnily enough, the last time we had a record-breaking crop, the year before we saw prices well over $1,000 a tonne. Would you expect there to be further price rises? Potentially, yes. I mean, it really depends on how our production goes. We know that there's, yes, lentils coming off now, but looking out of the window right now and forecasts and so on, and it's always been said this might be a hot and dry year. So, uh, you know, our production is definitely going to be lower than last year. One thing to consider there is, yes, we, we will have a crop and this kind of price at harvest will be very attractive for farmers. So there is potential that at that time, if everyone sells heaps of lentils, then prices could ease a little bit. But, you know, we're talking November. We're, we're way off before that becomes true. 
What about other pulse crops? Are they seeing similar rises in demand and price? Well, you have to have a look at what's happening in India with, with desi chickpeas. We've already seen a price increase on desi chickpeas of you know over $200 a tonne. It doesn't so much affect South Australia and Victoria, but looking at New South Wales and Queensland, we've already seen a huge rally in desi prices before we even started harvesting anything. And things like beans and peas, South Australia and Victoria, you know, we were already at quite in my opinion, quite low prices for those, especially beans, where we were at a feed market level here in Australia. So there's definitely potential for some upside there, you know, depending on what happens here with the weather and various other factors that will make a difference. William Alexander, he's a pulse trader at Australian Grain Exports and he was speaking to Karen Hunt. 17 past 12. You're with Belinda Varaschetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. We'll take a look at the avocado situation shortly. I wonder what prices you've seen in the shops just recently. The last time I was there, I think it was a dollar twenty a piece, uh, but in some places it's a uh, dollar, which is great if you want to pick up a few avocados and you're, you're shopping, but. Not so great if you're one of the producers around Australia. We'll get to that shortly. First, though, the state opposition is calling on the state government to start crisis talks for the sheep industry, which it says is struggling with falling sheep prices. The Nationals WA member for Rose says dry seasonal conditions and excess carryover of livestock and the federal government's policy to phase out the live sheep trade by sea has created a lack of confidence in the sheep industry. Colin de Grasse raised the issue in state parliament. The member for Rowe. Thank you, Madam Speaker. My question is to the Premier. Premier, I refer to grave concerns within our sheep farming sector, which is grappling with a loss of confidence and a dramatic fall in sheep prices. An example of which is young weathers falling from $150 per head at this time last year to just $5 for similar stock now, as well as the inability to find markets due to federal Labor's impending live export ban. And I ask, one, Premier, do you acknowledge that your failure to successfully lobby your federal colleagues has caused this lack of confidence? And two, Have you actually got any idea of the potential crisis that is now looming with rapidly declining sheep prices and limited markets in which to sell sheep? The Premier. Um, Madam Speaker, the the member seems to be conflating two completely unrelated um, issues. Uh, One is uh, the issues with regards to the price of, of sheep, and I'll come to that shortly. But the other is to do with an federal government inquiry into the potential for a ban on live sheep exports which may or may not come into being in somewhere around 27, 28. So remember there is no restrictions in relation to um, the the export of live sheep other than those which we introduced which was about the welfare of those animals and so it is wrong to say that this is somehow impacted by a government decision which is not being made and would not be implemented for another four four, four years time. Madam, the other issue the member raises is in terms of the, the the, the, the price of sheep which of course is completely decoupled, delinked and not attached to the issue of the confidence of the farmers involved. 
Uh, that is just um, a, a ludicrous suggestion. This is called the function of the market. And obviously I appreciate the difficult situation that our, that our sheep producers in, are in. And over the last 18 months there has been a decline in the strong prices that we have seen nationally for lamb in recent years. Um, this decline started well before your referred crisis of confidence, that is the federal government in, uh, announcement with regards to live sheep exports. And th there are resources available to, the, um, to farmers during the 2023 season on the DPIRD side, as well as the best Minister for Primary Industry since the last one, uh, <laughs> who is always available to speak with farmers, hear about their concerns and to work with the industry to continue to, um, to, to monitor and support Support. I want to just draw the Chamber's attention to the fluctuations of the price of, of sheep uh, uh, over the last few years. So in 2016, the price was 201 cents per kilo. It then went up to 419 cents per kilo in 2018 and is now down to 241 cents per kilo in 2023. So we understand that there will continue to be fluctuations in the price. And we understand that that will continue to impact on farmers, regardless of any other issues that are out there, there will be fluctuations in the price. That's called the market. And we also know, Madam Speaker, is that our farming community are resilient and that they have diversified industries which will allow them to rely upon other livestock or other crops in order to continue to sustain their businesses. And that is the way it has always been. But what they have, and they should have confidence in, is a Minister for Primary Industries and Agriculture that will stand by them, work with them and assist them where we can appropriately to, um, to ride out any of these disruptions or fluctuations in the market. Supplementary question. Um, respectfully, Premier, you're way off the track. But will you, will you get on the phone to the Federal Minister for Agriculture and explain the dire situation for WA sheep producers and heed the opposition's calls to engage in crisis talks and do something as Premier with your ability to influence the Federal Minister. The Premier. Madam Speaker, the, the, the members proposition that this is somehow linked to a policy process in the federal government that may or may not result in a decision which will may or may not take place till 26-27 is absolute utter nonsense, complete nonsense. That is the Premier Roger Cook in Parliament this week and just answering those questions from the member for Roe, Peter Rundle. Curious to know what your thoughts are about that exchange and whether you think that the federal government's policy to phase out the live sheep trade uh, by sea is having any impact on prices. Is there a link or not? What do you think? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Text through. Let me know what you're thinking. 23 past 12. Checking in with news headlines shortly. Around about half past 12 today. First, though, Avocados Australia says fruit selling for $1 a piece is not great news for farmers trying to keep their business afloat. CEO John Tyus says the prices are partly driven by a 75% jump in production in the past three years. He says growers can't make sustainable returns at the current prices. I'd say those prices can't continue. Simply growers will go out of business at, at those prices. How did this happen? 
Oh, look, it's really driven by supply and demand largely. We've had a lot of new plantings that have gone in uh, over the last five to ten years, and a lot of those are now coming into production now. So uh, we're expecting this coming financial year to be producing about 140,000 tonnes. Back in 2020-21, our production was under 80,000. So, you know, we've seen a massive increase. That's likely to continue for the next few years, although the growth is going to slow. We're expecting to reach about 170,000 tonnes by 2026, thereabouts. So this year, Western Australia's got a very good crop and also the tri-state region, so they're, they're harvesting at the moment. And, yeah, it's just a, just a lot of pressure on the market. And when you say tri-state region, we're talking about the Riverland, the Sunraysia area? Correct, yes. And um, we've also heard there's a lot of small avocados this year, which do, supermarkets don't particularly like, doesn't meet their specs. Is that the case? Yeah, there is a fair bit of small, smaller fruit around at the moment, and that's often the case when you have a very heavy crop on, on the trees uh, and also coupled with you know, environmental conditions if there's sort of issues with, with water. But, yeah, we need to be able to sell all sizes from very large to, to small. So what's happening to those small avocados? Well, one of the things we've been working on over the last few years, because we've, we've known that this increased production is, is coming, we've been working really hard to open new export markets. Fortunately, some of the, uh, some of the export markets uh, in, in Asia uh, do prefer a smaller size fruit, so there is, there is an opportunity there. You know, the independents potentially can take um, more of that smaller fruit. So, you know, what, what we need to do is, is find markets for all sizes and, and all grades. But definitely we've seen a massive increase in the volumes that have been exported over the last few years. So, you know, at the moment about 500 tonnes a week is, is being exported. Um, so we're, we're now exporting in a month what uh, a few years ago we would uh, export in a whole year. So we've seen a massive increase in the volumes going offshore. But for the time being, those little avocados may not find a market. I mean, what about a marking campaign, itty-bitty avocados on your toast, that sort of thing? Yeah, yep. I guess that's, a, that's an opportunity. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a small avocado. No, it's I prefer just, them. Uh, <laughs> the, the retailers, uh, the major retailers don't want to retail those smaller fruits. They do put them in the, uh, often they'll be in a netted bag uh, as a sort of bulk purchase. But yeah, it is challenging when you've got a lot of small fruit on the market. And avocados are not something you can store long term. So is there a bit of pain for avocados in the next, the next season uh, with this big supply? Yeah, there, there is. Uh, you know, there's been a, pain, a bit of pain for the last couple of years and we've seen domestic consumption grow considerably. In fact, domestic consumption's been increasing almost every year for the past 20 years. So domestically, our consumption levels are very good and I think there's still a lot of opportunity to grow domestic consumption, but the exports will be the key. We recently gained access to Thailand for Western Australian growers West Australia also has access to Japan. Soon we're hoping uh, the whole country will have access to India. So, but we still, there's still a lot more we need to do to open more export markets and uh, technical market access is, is our challenge and we need government assistance to do that and uh, you know, that will make a big difference. Avocados Australia Chief Executive John Tyus with Emma Field. 28 past 12, a few texts coming through on that exchange that you heard from State Parliament this week. The member for Roe, Peter Rundle, asking the Premier Roger Cook about sheep prices and calling for a crisis meeting to address 
uh, the sheep prices in this state and uh, Peter Rundle saying that there's just a lack of confidence in the industry at the moment. Uh, This text from John Hassel from WA Farmers who says, Cook is wrong. The impending ban is causing people to consider getting out of sheep. That is exacerbated by poor season up north, pushing more sheep onto the market. Lack of opportunity to sell to the east because there is no price premium and the lack of air freight space. Four issues, all compounding, says John. Thanks for that text. Phil says, on Oh, the ignorance and the arrogance of the Premier. And this from Gilly the Farmer. Nobody wants to buy sheep because we are all fearful of more price falls when live export is banned, which means there are far more ewes and weathers on the market than normal, which is creating an oversupply and resulting in terrible prices. Roger Cook clearly has no understanding or would prefer to lie his way out of this, says Gilly. Thanks for that. The text, if you want to be part of the conversation, zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Twenty nine past twelve. And Tony's here with an update from the newsroom. Hello. Good afternoon, Belinda. The WA Minister for Climate Action has defended the government's carbon emissions reduction target. Earlier this year, Reese Whitby announced new emissions laws which would set interim reduction targets every five years on a path to net zero by 2050. Mr Whitby says a 2030 target would create too tight a time frame for industry and WA's first target will be 2035 in line with federal government plans. The Federal Health Minister says an independent inquiry into government responses to the COVID-19 pandemic will better prepare Australia for future pandemics. Retired senior public servant Robin Crook, epidemiologist Catherine Bennett and economist Angela Jackson will head the inquiry. Mark Butler says the panel will have a year to review health measures, governance and supports, including quarantine facilities and vaccinations. And a former chairman of Australia's competition watchdog is investigating whether businesses nationwide are price gouging. Alan Fells is chairing a union-backed inquiry today in Melbourne into whether supermarkets, airlines and the big banks are doing more than simply passing on their costs. Professor Fells says he'll examine what's happening in supply chains. Belinda, I'll be back with some more news at one o'clock. Thanks so much, Tony. 29 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. And more text coming through on the conversation from Parliament this week. The Premier, Roger Cook, just saying he doesn't believe there's any link to the federal government's policy to phase out the live sheep trade and the price of sheep here in Western Australia at the moment. In response to that, Stephen Encouragen says, the Premier showing how completely out of touch he is with the crisis affecting WA growers. Absolutely disgraceful token response to this crisis, which was 100% initiated by Federal Labor announcement to phase out LiveX and the loss of confidence by industry. The stress of poor seasonal conditions, no outlet to sell many sheep, forcing growers to destroy sheep, with no value. Where is the state's agricultural minister's support for her portfolio? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. That's the text. Have your say this afternoon between now and the news at one. Before the news at one, it's off to Mount Barker for the results of today's cattle market and also heading to the Ord in the Kimberley just to see what's going on. Pretty busy at the moment with the cotton picking and the corn about to come off. Right now, heading to the Bureau of Meteorology, Joey Rawson, what is the story across the Southwest Land Division? 
Okay, uh, Belinda, good, oh, not good morning, good afternoon. Um, we do have a mid-level trough that's kind of moving over the kind of central west, low west parts of the central wheat belt and into the Great Southern. So there are showers falling out of that mid-level cloud band, but a lot of that shower activity is not reaching the ground, unfortunately. So there's also the potential for the odd thunderstorm in that band. But again, we're not expecting much uh, rain to reach the ground, maybe a millimetre at most um, if things do line up. So that's going to push through uh, further to the southeast tomorrow. There may just be a bit left over tomorrow morning and then it's going to kind of wash out of the system um, on Saturday. But then Saturday we have a cold front that's going to move over the far southwest. This cold front is only weak. Uh, we're only expecting some falls around the southwest. Not much um, rain is going to push inland with that cold front. So uh, maybe two to three millimetres over the southwest and, and southwestern parts of the Great Southern may receive a millimetre. But that's about the tops of it, Blender. And, and then uh, next week gets really interesting because uh, we start developing quite a summer pattern blender and uh, we start getting the trough developed down the west coast and, and by the time we get to Wednesday we potentially could have a fair bit of heat around the southwest land division so uh, temperatures getting well above 30 potentially on Wednesday so uh, not good uh, for the next week as far as rain goes and yeah as well as temperatures certainly rising next week, Belinda. Yeah, I was just looking at my phone app. 34 degrees, that's in the city, on next Wednesday and hotter out in other parts of the Southwest Land Division? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, 34 is actually um, the September record. So, um, you know, we're going for one of the hottest days. It is still a fair way out, but uh, it's just an indication that uh, there are some quite... Hot temperatures for this time of year uh, pushing down and it'll affect Perth and, and most of the Southwest Land Division, all, yeah. all parts east of the trough. Okay. Let's have a look at northern and eastern parts then. So uh, settled conditions continuing through the north. It's going to be uh, windy through the interior, especially tomorrow morning and Saturday morning. And then, uh, yeah, just settled conditions uh, continuing for as far as we can see, Belinda. All right. Uh, warnings this afternoon. Anything on the list? We have a strong wind warning for the Esperance Coast. And that is all for our warnings. All right. Good to talk to you. Thank you for that, Joey. It is 25 to 1 here on the Country Hour and... Checking the rain, nothing there. No rain anywhere in Western Australia in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. Now, the Bureau of Meteorology this week has officially declared an El Nino. We spoke about that a little bit yesterday here on the Country Hour. It's been declared, but some parts of Australia are already in drought. In recent months, an organisation called Rural Aid has had a 250% increase in calls for emergency drinking water. CEO John Walters says they've also had calls from farmers in need of fodder, so any donations will be warmly welcomed. The latest declaration, I guess, has is, is probably just reaffirmed what um, people have been expecting is going to happen and have probably been really living through already up until this point. It, it's certainly been hotter than we'd, we'd normally expect for, for this time of the year. 
And at Rural Aid, we're really seeing over the, the, the winter months a, a real increase in the demand for assistance. And we're really bracing for that to continue and to, to increase as we go into summer, uh, where it's only going to get hotter and drier. And is that assistance around drought and drought feeding? Uh, it, it very much is. Um, right now, there's been a, a real surge in demand for emergency deliveries of drinking water, and that's in, increased almost 250% in the last couple of months. So too, um, requests for fodder. But also, um, our team of, of counsellors stand ready to, to help and, and provide emotional and wellbeing support to to farming families. They're, they're based in rural communities. They understand those issues and challenges. And really importantly, they can see our producers on their properties and take the service to them rather than um, necessarily expecting it to be a conversation that, that takes place in an office in an urban or, or city environment. And in terms of your buyer bail campaign, have you had a lot of donations already to come in this year? Oh, look, buyer bail is, is, is what um, so many people know Rural Aid for, and it's been an incredibly um, successful way of connecting the city to the country by default. It's, it's through buyer bail that, that people who, who lived in rural, uh, in regional and, and often urban environments were able to make a contribution to an organisation like Rural Aid so that we could then get help and support to farming families. And it, it continues to this day, and we're, we're really probably going to be, and, and not probably, but there, there's an absolute um, need um, right now that's emerging. And so we, we're very much asking the wider community to, to be generous again and to put, your, put its trust in Rural Aid again with a donation so that we can go to work doing the things that we do um, to support our farming families. And have you had many donations come in this year so far? Oh, look, it's it's certainly very welcome support and what we've seen as we've been telling some of those stories about the situation that producers have in front of them and, and very much focused on just that need for drinking water at the moment. Like, as I mentioned, we've seen a, a 250% increase in the request for emergency drinking water. Along with um, water infrastructure and particularly water tanks, um, there's a real focus on that and that certainly has resonated with the wider community that they've wanted to, to help address that problem but I, th I think the stories that are going to be told going forward are, are going to be those stories about how drought assuming um, drought comes with El Nino um, starts to unfold um, we're, we're seeing it already it's very very dry in a number of places parts of, of New South Wales in the the northern rivers on the north coast in the New England um, down through the Hunter and then way down south around Bega or, or already drought declared and conditions are worsening in those areas. It's always a challenge to source fodder and particularly in a year like the, the one we're experiencing right now, the, the floods from earlier in the year and late last year has certainly impacted the, the availability of fodder. So that's that's going to be a challenge that will, will not only be a rural aid challenge, but it'll be one that producers wherever they are that are seeking fodder that are going to have to, to manage. So we're, we're really aware of that. We, we, we certainly are conscious that the fodder that we, we deliver to people is supported with a vendor declaration um, so we can 
be confident around the quality of that fodder that we, we bring onto farms. We want to make sure that it doesn't come with any headaches and any pests and, and noxious weeds. So, again, we're very conscious about that, but the, the challenge will be sourcing fodder at a right price. Rural Aid CEO John Walters with Megan Hughes, 20 to 1. Well, it's a busy time in the Ord Valley at the moment in the Kimberley with the cotton picking almost done and the headers rolling out of the sheds ready to get into those corn crops. And the mood among growers is high with not as many signs of the infamous fall armyworm pest and the biggest boat that's ever left the Port of Wyndham booked to export the corn post-harvest. Owner of Oasis Farms, Fritz Bolton, says the work is about to start and he likes what he's seen so far. We, we're going to start um, in the next three or four hours. We've seen some of the preliminary results from some early planted corn at Christian Blockers in particular, and that was extremely encouraging. Um, so again, utilising some of those skills that we're learning from planting in February. So I think in the future we'll plant cotton in February and then follow that up with planting corn in March. And look, Christian's had some really fantastic results there and it's extremely exciting. Our early corn crops look better than last year. The full armyworm have um, left us alone a bit more than, than in the past and that's going to be really positive. What do you put that down to? Still some uh, fall armyworm um, congregate in, I'll call them nests or big, in, in certain areas. Um, but also, if you talk to people from around the world, after two or three years of arriving in a new destination, fall armyworm pick up a few more natural pathogens and also the beneficials start to, start to get used to making use of that food sources such full armyworm are particularly fast moving and aggressive so that's why it's taken a bit longer now we've still got areas where full armyworm have just decimated parts of the field but there's also areas where the full armyworm have been quite balanced and and we think we're going to have some some pretty good yields what percentage of the crop do you think you'd classify as as decimated by full armyworm i think it's a fairly small percentage one, one of the other strategies has been that we, we feel that if we plant corn early, the population of fall armyworm is spread throughout the bush as well as the cropping area. So we've, we've worked really hard on that. So um, we've planted 50% of our crop substantially earlier in a different planting window than what we've done in the past. And have done that both for logistical reasons and that's just that's about the capacity we had to plant early. Um, I think we'll plant all of our crops in March next year, all of our corn crops in March next year, and I'm and are certainly changing a lot of our management decisions and operations around being able to facilitate that. Um, but getting back to that, how bad has the fall armyworm been? Um, I'll talk to you after harvest. <laughs> Talking about post-harvest, what do those logistics look like? How do you go trucking your corn and, and where does it go to? So half our corn will, will get exported to South Korea um, and this year we've booked, we've got one boat and that'll be the biggest boat that's ever left the Wharfton Wyndham. Um, so that'll be in, um, and I think that's in early November. Um, so that's pretty exciting and the other half will 
will stay locally for the for the cattle market. Biggest boat to have ever left the port of Wyndham. Mm. Wow. Yep, yep. It's only small compared to world standard, but it's a, it's a low draft port. But yeah, again, that's years of work and working with CGL to optimise what's possible. What kind of market is there for corn at the moment? From uh, like the export market is is very good, and you know we're we're really concerned about the um, lumpy skinned risk for the cattle and the and the pressure that's put on the pastoralists and the live export market, and we really need that to be to be functioning properly for the pastoralists to to want to use um, grain to supplement their their cattle. With. Are you seeing an interest from pastoralists this year when we're having conversations around how many cattle are still left in the Kimberley at this time of the season, sort of late in the in the dry season? Are, are more people looking towards supplementing cattle now? I think um, one of the things pastoralists are extremely good at is when when times are tough, they uh, stop spending money, and we've got to respect that. Fritz Bolton, who runs Oasis Farms in the Ord Valley, speaking to Alice Marshall. Quarter to one. As Australia shifts from eradication to management of the destructive varroa mite, big questions remain about how it's all going to work. As David Clawton explains, there could be big ramifications for some beekeepers and horticulturalists throughout Australia. Phil Hanna is an entomologist and beekeeper on the New South Wales mid-north coast. He told Tina Quinn the change from eradication to management is a disaster. Especially the backyard beekeepers, which make up probably the major portion of this industry, are going to be devastated by this. It's happened too quickly. They've let it out to management. It's going to cause a lot of problems. We're going to lose a lot of bees. People don't realise the repercussions of the diseases that are coming. When you say the diseases, what do you mean? The rail mite, when it feeds off the fat body of the bee, uh, it injects um, fluid into the fat bee for, for, for reasons. And that, in that fluid, there's viruses, of which are systemic in bees, and of course it'll continue on from bee to bee. It doesn't have to be bitten by the varroa mite a second time. Uh, and this is going to be a management problem. This is an early days problem they had in the US, but I don't think we can draw too much of a conclusion with what went on over there because our climate is completely different. I think we're going to see the varroa might be more prolific here than anywhere else. Well, that's my view. Phil Hanno's own business, supplying medical honey to the health system, is deeply affected by the failure to eradicate the varroa mite. I'm actually a, a termite specialist. I've been involved with the honeybees for about 40 years. We started this research project into medical honey about five years ago and it's this year we've started to turn it into a commercial operation uh, and the aim is to provide high quality medical honey off plantations into hospitals and veterinary surgeons. Now with the advent of the varroa mite, uh, using chemicals in the hives is probably going to prevent us from being able to do that. We'd still be able to collect the medical honey and sell it to the public but no, I don't think the hospitals are going. It's probably to that end that my operation's going to come to a stop sometime after Christmas, I think. 
Another apiarist who's already lost everything is Cole Wilson from the Hunter Valley. It's been a long 15 months for him since Varroa was first discovered in his area. But he told Amelia Bernasconi he's up for the challenge of rebuilding his business. In Australia, we are a very innovative country. Uh, a lot of good researchers, a lot of good scientists. We'll start breeding programs to improve the genetics for Varroa-resistant bees. So I'm sort of pretty confident that probably Australia will be the leader in this, but we have a, a totally different climate and environment than what makes it easier for the rest of the world to live with it. Um, bees keep breeding like 12 months of the year where the rest of the world, that, that doesn't happen. So that there will be a lot more sort of difficult challenges for us to live with it. Cole Wilson is calling on the government to provide low-interest loans to beekeepers so they can get going again. Scott Hanson, the Director-General of the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries, says there's no change yet to the funding for the control program or compensation packages, but it is being considered now. He told Michael Condon the priority is to keep the varroa mite in New South Wales and to slow down the spread to other states. And research by ABARES highlights how important that is. To let this mite spread freely across the country would cost the Australian economy $5.2 billion over the forward uh, 30 years. That same modelling says that there's significant reduction in their cost if you are able to suppress it and reduce the um, rate of spread. The big change is to get rid of the different coloured zones and create a suppression zone and a management zone only. That will allow Riverina beekeepers, with bees stuck in the almond pollination areas, to move their hives, while beekeepers in other Varroa hotspots in New South Wales will still face tough restrictions. David Clawton with that report, 10 to 1. The chair of a Western Australian apple and pear committee thinks it's inevitable growers' costs will increase as a result of the Varroa mite plan changing from eradication to management. Donnybrook orchardist Jason Jarvis is chair of Poem West, representing apple and pear growers in the southwest of the state. He says it's only a matter of time before the Varroa mite finds its way into WA and starts attacking native and commercial beehives that pollinate their orchards. It's disappointing um, because... Obviously, it's, it's easier to, to not have to deal with varroa mite, but um, it's, um, it's certainly a, a concern um, because we rely on the pollination from the bees and anything that impacts on, on that is going to affect us. Do you see um, predicted increasing costs when it comes to you know getting bees in because you won't be able to rely on the wild populations as much? Um, how will you see this unfolding for, for the apple orchard industry? It's definitely going to be an increased cost, but it depends whether the, the beekeepers are able to, to handle the increased um, demand and also at that time of the year when there's other industries that can perhaps better afford to, to pay the, the costs, we're competing with them. Um, so that's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. How much of the industry relies on hives being brought in as opposed to, to wild populations, would you say? I'd say it's um, it's probably 50-50 at the moment. So, yeah, there's a lot of hives that are going to be needed. 
Yeah, so we increased demand, that's for sure. Tony Brook Orchardist, Jason Jarvis, who's chair of Apple and Pear Committee, Home West, speaking to Ali Honeybone. Eight minutes to one. Earlier in the hour, you heard the opposition calling on the state government to start crisis talks for the sheep industry, which it says is struggling with falling sheep prices. The Nationals WA member for Roe, Peter Runder, was saying that the dry seasonal conditions and excess carryover of livestock and also the federal government's policy to phase out the live sheep trade by sea had created a lack of confidence in the sheep industry and, and, you know, causing those prices to fall. Now, the Premier, Roger Cook, didn't agree with that analysis. He says that policy, that federal government policy to phase out the live ex trade doesn't have a direct link to the sheep prices being experienced here in WA. In response to that on the text, Matthew says, Poor Roger Cook, he's a bit off the mark. Sure, sheep prices fluctuate, but if our live export industry was still vibrant, it should be taking two million or more sheep out of our state. That would make a considerable difference. Wake up, Premier, says Matthew. This too, with regards to the live sheep export argument, is anyone thinking about the impact on land and soils? A lot of farmers are bailing out ripping out fences, and we'll go back to grain. Up comes the salt again. And Joe in Wagen says, With the live sheep trade in limbo, sheep prices are low, but lamb still costs a lot at the shops. Farmers will have to shoot sheep. New lambs coming onto the market and running out of feed. Labour, the greens and animal activists have no understanding. The text, 0448 922 604. Seven to one. We'll get to the market shortly, off to Mount Barker today for the results of the cattle market. And it sounds like demand for emu eggs is on the rise, but it might be a little while before you see them on your supermarket shelves. Catherine Watkin has been farming emus in Cookeran for over a decade and just recently got a licence to sell the eggs. She says demand seems to have increased since the price of chicken eggs went up. The emu egg has, you know, been quite large. It's sort of about a equivalent to eight to ten normal eggs. Now that chook eggs are so expensive, it's sort of made it that there's not such a big gap between an emu egg and a dozen chook eggs. And just something different, it, it's a very thick yolk and a very thick white. So a lot of the cooks and chefs love it for meringue bases and, and that sort of stuff. Other than that, um, just a novelty to, you know, cook up an emu egg cake or an emu egg quiche for something different. And then, yeah, the ones at the end of the year when I empty them and sell them, that's just amazing. I'm sending them all over the state. So the rising cost of chicken eggs has actually boosted the market for emu eggs, you're saying? It's helped, of course. You know, back when chicken eggs were $3, $3.50 and an emu egg is $30 as a full emu egg, an empty emu egg is $20 just for the shell. Yeah, I think that probably has helped it a bit. So it's quite recently you've seen this takeoff in the egg market? Um, well, it's only been the last two, three years that I've actually got the egg licence to be able to do it. Um, before then, we were just, yeah, we didn't really sell to the public but then I got them into the Wanneroo markets and then put them on on the website and yeah we you know certainly I would love that market to be more 
Do you see potential for the emu egg market to continue on this trajectory? Yeah, I'd like to. The only thing is, again, is freight. You know, like if I have to get them to Perth and keep them fresh, um, I mean, emu eggs can last up to, you know, month, two months, as long as they don't get hot. But you would still need them to be pretty fresh to get them to Perth. And with petrol and everything, getting them to Perth is, and the freight is always seems to be the killer. What does an emu egg taste like? Does it taste like a chicken's egg? Yeah, pretty well, just thicker. It's like a, I feel a duck egg has a stronger uh, smell and a taste, whereas I, I don't find that the emu egg does. I, I tend to, um, because they're so thick, I, we beat them really, really well. So we'll beat them for 20 minutes before we use them in a quiche or a cake or whatever. Um, no, I, I mean, the cakes and the quiches that we make out of them are usually, you know, they're very light and very fluffy. So, yeah, but I, I myself don't, don't taste a difference and people don't actually say, oh, this is different. It's, yeah, so, no, I'm not sure about that one. Do you have a special recipe for oh, emu eggs? I surely do. I have my very special emu egg sponge cake that uh, many of visitors that have been here have been able to taste and um, the groups I have I'll, I can make up to about 20 cakes at a time. One egg makes three cakes and then I just put the cream on top and they go down very well. Yeah. Emu farmer Catherine Watkins speaking to Sophie Johnson and you can see one of the huge emu eggs it's on Sophie's online story just search ABC News and emu eggs, and you will find that online story. Two minutes to one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. The Prime Minister announces an inquiry into the COVID response by the federal and state governments. You'll hear an exclusive interview with Qantas Chairman Richard Goider, who is refusing to step down despite calls from some shareholders. And cyber attack with the lot. The personal details of almost 200,000 Pizza Hut customers have been stolen. Those stories are more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. About a minute and a half away from the news at one to the markets now and 481 head of cattle sold at the Mount Barker sale yards this morning. So a very similar sized yarding to last week. Tracy Kilner, I hear the quality and the prices were pretty good today. Do you want to run through the details? Processor cattle gained with demand while the young stock were up with the feeder buyer and restockers keen to secure numbers. Wiener steers sold from 320 to 364 cents, while the Wiener heifers made from 256 to 282 cents a kilo. Yearling steers sold from 220 to 338 cents, and the yearling heifers gained with quality selling for 190 to 260 cents a kilo. Grown steers returned 220 to 258 cents, and the grown heifers sold from 180 to 210 cents a kilo. Heavy cows gained five cents, selling from 180 to 206 cents, averaging 190 cents, while the heavy bulls were up 20 cents, selling from 180 to 210 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Tracy. A couple more texts just before the news at one. This from Michael in Busselton. Despite all the politicking by the National Party supporters sending in their anti-government bile, sheep prices have been on the decline for years. High prices in the supermarkets are not healthy. And this from Fiona. Sheep farmers texting the Country Hour should also email the same concerns to the Premier Roger Cook 
and the Agriculture Minister, Jackie Jarvis. Uh, Many more texts to get through, but time is against us today. Good to hear from you. Time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.